Hello, listeners. This is Gerard Robinson from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Welcome to another great upcoming conversation about education, about life, about social issues, and of course, a post-Thanksgiving conversation about food. So, Kara, how are you? How was Thanksgiving? I'm still in post-Thanksgiving torpor here. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, as I shared with you, Jared, it was a lovely Thanksgiving. In fact, we had very quiet sort of Friendsgiving, which was just beautiful with people that we haven't actually had in the house in a long time. So that was just marvelous. And then we resolved to actually relax on the Friday and Saturday after Thanksgiving, meaning like doing those things that one should do, like play board games with children and stuff like that. Then, of course, my husband and I looked at each other Sunday night and we were like, we have so much to do. Why did we relax? So other, other than that realization, it was really wonderful to have that time with family and friends. And I got to say, I'm off pie again for the foreseeable future because I don't know. I don't know if it was worth it. How about you? I want to hear about the beautiful meal that you cooked. So for those of you who listened uh, last week, and this is also a hint if you did not, you may want to go and check that one out. So we were at home with the family, just my wife and I and the two of the three daughters, and I cooked this fried chicken. Now, for most people, they're like, wow, it's nothing spectacular. Well, my family does not eat a lot of fried food. We eat some, but not a lot. So this is only the second time in the life of my children who've ever had fried chicken, and both times I've made it. So as many of you know, I'm also a pescatarian. I'm a vegan who eat seafood, although for the last four months, I have pretty much gone plant-based here and there with seafood. But anyway, so I had my vegan sausage, but I decided to try a piece of my own chicken. Now get this, it's the first time I've had fried chicken since 1989. And Carrie, you weren't even born then. And so it was just a really different time in American life. So I had it and I think I had a pie moment that you just discussed. So let's just say that won't happen, but my family finished the last batch of cold chicken last night, but it was just good to be with family and friends. Cold fried chicken is delicious. We look forward to having people over next year. We're on the other side of what we still have as a pandemic, so we can get Oh, I'm sorry. Are we on the other side of it? Because if you listen to the doom and gloom, I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm trying not to listen to the news anymore. One important question, though, George, before we get to stories of the week, and that is, what were your Thanksgiving sides? I feel like that's really important. I think it says a lot about people to know what they serve as side dishes. We had collard greens, we had yams, and we had fried. I cooked the fries. We don't have mashed potatoes. And my wife brought something. Oh, we had macaroni and cheese, but of course, uh, oh, soy yeah. cheese. Yeah. Or Traditional and delicious, cheese. except for the soy cheese. Yes. Traditional yes. and delicious. That sounds amazing. Okay. Now I'm ready. Now I feel replete. You can go on to the story of the week. You have my permission. Well, my story of the week is about my other home state, which is California. As many of you know, I grew up in California and moved to the East Coast for education, work, and love. And on the other side of California, there is conversations about California love or possibly California dreaming, depending upon what artists you listen to. So my article is from the Wall Street Journal. Andy Kessler is the author. And the title of his piece, A California Attempt to Repair the Crumbling Pillars of U.S. Education. As we know, California is the largest state in America. It is a state that is a textbook adoption state. And so, of course, what happens in places like California, Texas, happens across the United States. Well, the author here said California, like many states, 
even pre-pandemic were having academic challenges. So for example, take this, only 32% of fourth graders in California before the pandemic were at or above proficient in reading. Only 19% of eighth grade Hispanics read at grade level and only 10% of eighth grade blacks did. This was of course pre-pandemic. And some of our guests that we've had over the last several months, we've talked about the pandemic, through the lens of finance, through the lens of politics, through the lens of curriculum, they've said we have something called learning loss, which both you and I believe is reality. But that was pre-pandemic. And so the question now is, well, what do we do to basically help the Golden State? Well, the Golden State has been a recipient of billions of dollars of federal money through multiple stimulus packages. So that's one lane. But there's someone in that state who said, well, money matters, but how you spend it matters and how you spend it, particularly on quality education matters most. Oh, and by the way, teachers play a role in that. So there's a entrepreneur in Silicon Valley named Dave Welch, who may be familiar to some of our listeners. He played a role and with others in 2014 in having Baguera v. California make its way through the court system. And as some of you know, they basically said, listen, until we can find a way of getting rid of teachers that aren't performing well or laying off teachers for similar reasons, we're going to have a lot of challenges. And so it went before a judge in 2014. The judge ruled in favor of the families who brought the case. Well, in 2016, the appeal court reversed that case. And why? They said, quote, with no proper showing of a constitutional violation, the court is without power to strike down the challenge statute, even though the Court of Appeals mentioned that a lot of the challenges in schools, in fact, teachers have played a role in that. And so Mr. Welch is pretty much back to where he started. And so he and a group of people have gotten together and said, listen, the education system that we have right now is not going to prioritize students for a host of reasons. One, you've got the teachers union, which in 2020 was the fourth largest investor in 2020 elections behind healthcare industry, energy, and prison guards. And so he said, let's do something novel. If in fact, what we propose was not a violation against the constitution, why don't we come up with an idea to say, basically, we're gonna make education a right in the state of California. It's gonna be a right, and it's gonna be a constitutional right. And if we make it a constitutional right, we're gonna basically say it's gotta be a high quality education that every student in California should have access to it. And if they don't have access to it, guess what? Then you violated the constitution. Well, as you and I know, we had a conversation about this as well recently, there was a ballot initiative in California to get rid of now the sitting governor, Newsom, to replace him with someone else. Well, he won that pretty handily in a 70 to 30 ballot vote or vote that was put before the voters by a ballot initiative. Well, guess what? California is a state where a lot of initiatives that were signed and put before voters became law. Well, this could be another one. So Welsh realizes basically it's gonna, he's gonna have to get a million people to sign a petition. Uh, it's gonna cost millions of dollars to do so. In fact, he estimates it's gonna cost around $8 in investment per signature to get it on to the ballot. But he thinks it's important. And why? He said, until you make this a right and that high quality is a part of it, it's going to be really tough to challenge the system. And as you and I both know, California has been involved in a number of, let's say, school finance decisions going back to the Serrano decision 
back in the 1970s, but we also in 19, know in 1973, Supreme Court said that there is no federal constitutional right to education. So over the past several years, there have been advocates and scholars, one being Professor Kimberly Robinson from the University of Virginia, who is the author of a book on a federal right to education and another book that looked at school finance laws, and she's been a guest on the show as well. They've been pushing to say, listen, if we can't get it done at the federal level, guess what? Let's talk about a constitutional right at the state level. So Mr. Welsh and his friends are going to move forward. They've already filed the paperwork. I bet he's going to get a million signatures on the ballot. It's going to go before the voters. We'll see what happens. But I can tell you one thing that will happen. At the point when one million people sign it, and it's going to find itself on the ballot, we're going to have a really very tough but needed conversation about what high quality means and what does a right mean to a state education. What are your oh, thoughts? My thoughts are, well, many. I think, first of all, a lot of our listeners might be surprised to hear that not all of our state constitutions, I think a lot of folks who are in the ed space know that there's no federal right to education, that we leave it to the domain of the states, and that's what the Supreme Court has ruled. In fact, isn't mentioned in the U.S. Constitution at all, right? Not in the context we're talking about it. But that states, people I think would be surprised to learn that states haven't codified a right to education in many places. I mean, we can even talk about international treaties. The, the U.S., took the lead, I think it was under Eleanor Roosevelt, in saying that, for example, parents have a right to essentially direct the upbringing, direct the education of their children. We violate that on the daily here in the U.S. by locking parents into single district options. But there, it's interesting to the point you make, Gerard, this conversation around what is a right to education. Now, you hit on if we can get the right to education codified, if we can get that put into California's constitution, some, another state's constitution, the debate over what constitutes quality, that's something that we've had a little bit of here in Massachusetts when we went through our Massachusetts Education Reform Act back in the very early 1990s. The thing that piqued my interest, Gerard, and I would love to talk to your better half, <laughs> your other half, about this, is how are we going to find access? Because if I hear you correctly, we're talking about access, that you have to have access if education is indeed a right. And access to what? Is access to a certain public school enough? Do you have to qualify how that school performs against what? Against a state standard that may or may not meet a definition of quality? So some states, as you point out, have been going through this for years, but it sounds like this is a renewed part of the debate. We've gone from arguments decades ago about equality of education, which raises questions. Do we mean equality of opportunity or equality of outcomes? And then we go to arguments around adequacy, what constitutes an adequate education. And here, I think you might be talking that adequacy sort of quality thing goes hand in hand, but then what about access? And if I need access to a certain kind of school to give me a specific quality of education, and that's different from the kind of access you need, then I think that we're having some really, really interesting conversations to your point. Now, I'm hopeful that a case like this or a ballot initiative like this can drive the conversation forward. It usually is in state courts where we see huge pushes forward in education reform. And boy, oh boy, is it time? Because it's the 90s when we saw a rash of cases in places like Massachusetts and Kentucky and Texas. It's a long time ago now, Gerard. And so I'm really eager 
to see where this goes. And I was going to say interesting, but it's actually not interesting. It's actually not very surprising that this is a CEO, somebody in the business community who's driving this conversation because there's also a history of that in this country as far back as the 1980s when business owners started realizing that our schools were graduating kids who didn't have basic skills that they needed to be even employable. So yeah, this is one to watch and maybe we'll have to have Kimberly back on to help us understand some of the intricacies. We're gonna keep it on the West Coast with my story of the week. And unlike you, my friend, I don't get to say that I've lived in every state pretty much in this great country, but (laughs) I did spend a lot of time many years ago in my mid twenties when I was working in large scale assessment So this was like actually like 2001, 2002, working in large scale assessment in the state of Washington and working with the office of the superintendent of public instruction there, otherwise known as OSPI, to help them create their first state test. It's a place that is near and dear to my heart because I got to spend really beautiful summers there. But today, this article is coming to us out of the Seattle Times, and it's entitled, I love it because it's pithy give every student access to a computer science education. So again, that word access, this is really particularly about computer science. And I think that this is another thing. I'd been digging into this a little bit lately, so it wasn't super surprising to me, but it might surprise a lot of listeners to know. The computer science, arguably a skill that kids should have when they graduate high school, is not something that we're teaching in schools. And if we are, in some cases, we're probably not doing a very good job of it. So Washington, like Boston, is a bit of a technology hub. And according to this article, despite that status, most public school districts in Washington, in fact, more than 40%, so almost most, aren't even offering a single class in computer science. So what do we mean by computer science? I mean, there's a couple of things. We should understand so maybe sort of basic data and coding. I think data science is something that kids really need access to, really need to understand it to graduate high school. We should probably be thinking about that in terms of math curricula as well. But also computer science, you can talk about digital literacy, digital citizenship, some might call it. Like, how do we behave online? How do we behave with computers? I think that's all part and parcel of it. But in the state of Washington and in so many states like it, this just not, it's not happening in our schools. And I'm not even talking high schools. It should probably be happening even earlier. So listen to this. Only around 30,000 students, that's just under 9% of Washington's high school students were enrolled in computer science courses during 2019, 2020. And you know that dropped off way down during the pandemic, I'm sure. But this one kills me. Of that number, of that 9%, only 25% were female, okay? Also underrepresented were students with disabilities, English language learners, and students living in poverty. So again, not surprised by this, but I continue to be disheartened, not only by the overall numbers, but the numbers for women, the number for students with disabilities, all of these populations that we've listed here, because we seem to keep... On the one hand, we have these stories about, for example, oh, women are going to college at higher rates than men and like all of this success. But I read stories like this and I think we've got a long way to go because this tells me that we're still not making the headway that we need to and for all students and particularly for women in places like STEM. So this is going to be one to watch. I hope that we can spend more time in the near future, Gerard, talking about re-envisioning the skills kids really need to have to go out into life, into the workforce, into college, in career. Because I think that just like the conversation about access to a high quality education, this is something we haven't been talking about nearly enough. 
One of the reasons we put our girls in coding at age four each is to get them into a mindset of thinking or a thinking framework about how to assess thoughts, ideas. How do we move? How do you think? If someone said well, they're too young for coding, I said, well, first of all, you can start at four in the, where we were at the time in Richmond. But more importantly, it's a process of learning how to think how to use your hands at an early age, how to manipulate objects, and they end up building small robots that would move around the house about that. And they love it. And they loved it. And they're both young ladies now. But because of what you said, you and I both know that it has been, for a host of reasons, there are just not as many women in computer science compared to other STEM fields. But computer science has really been a challenge, and so glad to hear that. I'd like to brag from the Virginia perspective because usually Massachusetts is way ahead of we love to brag. in areas like this. But in Virginia, in fact, we actually have the K-12 computer science course opportunities outline, which we provide or the Department of Education will provide to counselors and teachers and families in terms of a pathway you can take in Virginia to study computer science. Virginia Tech, which is in the southwestern part of the state, is still one of the top 10 producers of engineers in the country. We have a lot of uh, technology companies in Northern Virginia. So computer science is a part of our DNA. I can't tell you that it's equally distributed across the state because it's not in the southern part of the state, in the eastern part, even some of the central parts where I live, it's a challenge. So I'm glad you brought this up and I'm glad you highlighted computer science because we often say STEM, but we don't actually disaggregate the sections. Yeah, what, is, what like. does that mean? Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Got to be able to explain it. Got to be able to explain it to my mom, for example. You know, what exactly is STEM? <laughs> All right, Gerard. Listen, we're going to pivot here because we've got a great guest waiting to come online. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Matt Chingos. He directs the Center on Education Data and Policy at the Urban Institute. And boy, if you read anything in Ed Policy, I bet you you've read his work. So we'll be back in just a minute. Listeners, we have with us today Dr. Matthew Chingos. He directs the Center on Education Data and Policy at the Urban Institute. There, he leads a team of scholars who undertake a policy-relevant research on issues from pre-kindergarten through post-secondary education and create tools, which this is a good one, so go check it out, such as the Urban's Education Data Portal. Chingos is co-author of Game of Loans, The Rhetoric and Reality of Student Debt and Crossing the Finish Line, Completing College at America's Public Universities. He has testified before Congress, and his work has been featured in media outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and NPR. Before joining Urban, Chingos was a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He received a BA in Government and Economics and a PhD in Government from Harvard University. Dr. Matthew Chingos, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited. My first question for you, actually, Gerard and I were talking about just, I guess, weeks ago now. We were both at the National Summit on Education hosted by ExcelNED, where I, in fact, moderated a panel called the Year of Choice. And I want to ask you about this, because if we look at the number of programs passed and really what happened in the wake of the pandemic in terms of expanding private school choice options, even some charter school and open enrollment options in places, it was a big deal. So you've been looking at this stuff. You've been observing choice policy debates for a while. Talk to us about what you see 
or what you saw in 2021 with the establishment of all of these new programs? Well, obviously the pandemic, you know, just upended so much in American education with schools being, you know, entirely closed for a period of time and then moving to a mix of in-person, virtual, hybrid options. And in a lot of cases, families weren't clearly weren't satisfied with what was available to them, especially if they had to work and needed a place for the children to go to school or just wanted their children to be engaged in a different environment. So I don't think it's a big surprise that there was kind of an increase in interest in choice in 2021. If you look at both the declines in enrollment in traditional district schools, but also the charter school lines recently put out a report showing there's an increase in charter schools, right? A, a form of public education that didn't see, by and large, that fall off. So in, in my mind, it's not surprising that you'd see more families looking for alternatives to the default one that many may have relied on in the past. And that may have been a little bit of a push to some policymakers to put in place some new policies, open up some new opportunities. But I think what that looks like long term, what the implications are really remain to be seen. There's obviously still so much uncertainty. So to see how much of this is going to kind of stick and reflect kind of a, a longer term demand beyond the kind of pandemic situation versus how much of it might be more of a blip. So time will tell. Yeah, I want to push on that a little bit because a lot of these new programs that we're talking about here, when we talked about private school choice in the past, and I, I do want to talk about charters tool, but when we talked about private school choice in the past, we were mainly talking about traditional vouchers or in many cases to get around blade amendments, tuition tax credit scholarships. But the majority of new programs that were passed this year are all education. Some call them education scholarship accounts. Some call them education savings accounts. But these are accounts, right, that you can use them for private school tuition in a lot of cases, but really provide parents a lot of the flexibility, I would argue, that many realized Ooh, wealthy people can afford during the pandemic, right? Like supplemental services and tutoring and all of that good stuff. Now, you say time will tell. <laughs> I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, are there any particular challenges, risks that you see associated with the growth of this particular brand of private school choice? And by that, I mean education savings accounts. Looking at the numbers, education savings accounts are still, as you know, relatively new, relatively small portion, I think in 2021, less than 30,000 students with education savings accounts and compare that to over 300,000 with tax credit scholarships over almost nearly a quarter of a million with school vouchers. You noted some of those new programs, so clearly that's a number that's going to grow. You also noted how that additional flexibility was especially useful during the pandemic when suddenly, for at least for a couple of months, every family in America was suddenly a homeschool family, right, was you know having to educate their students at home and obviously getting, in many cases, handouts or virtual learning from their school district or from their school of any kind. So I think the value of being able to have some resources to pay for a range of educational opportunities made all kinds of sense. Once again, to go back to the time we'll tell line, we'll have to see is as there's kind of more and more normal in-person schooling options, including public schooling options, will the ability to trade that for an account where you can buy a bunch of different things, will that be as appealing? I'm guessing some of this will stick, right? I, I imagine there were families who never thought that that would be of interest to them and then suddenly the pandemic happened and it's like, oh, this actually worked pretty well for my family. Whereas other families probably were like, after a few months, that was more than enough and happy to go back to some of the options they had before. So, so in my mind, there's no doubt that that trend of growth is going to continue both because of the new programs and because of just the way pandemic has upended things and make people realize maybe things they didn't realize before. But to what degree we see that, I think, remains to be seen. Yeah, I have to 
add to what you're saying, but I personally find it really interesting to think about how can we push on this concept of an education savings account for children, for families who might choose to stay in the public system? Is there something to learn there? We've seen it, small programs in a couple of places. And then here's where I'm going to wrap in charter schools, because we've seen a couple of charter schools, notably two here in Boston that I know of and some in Oklahoma that are essentially saying we're going to use federal money to give kids the equivalent of a small education scholarship account, right? So you're going to, you can be enrolled in our school, but we're going to give you some monies to provide supplemental services for your kids. And you can choose from a range of options that we're going to vet for you. What are your thoughts on that? And could you also comment in there on, we've been hearing a lot about private school choice, but to your point, the Alliance just researched saying that, yeah, charter school growth is steady enough. Where are charters going to fit into this sort of expanded choice landscape? Going back to the question about education savings accounts, but within the public system in the sense of, or including families who choose to keep their child enrolled in a public school, whether that's a district school or a public charter school or a magnet school, but to supplement those educational opportunities with, with private tutoring, with other things. And it, I think it is, and that's obviously a possibility and something I'm sure a lot of families would value. I think there's a question of to what degree do you provide benefits to families, especially if you're targeting families with lower incomes that are restricted to depend on a particular thing versus just providing uh, cash. And obviously we see that playing out in debates about programs like SNAP, you know, the food stamp program. Like, should we, do we make, give people money or do we give some people the money they have to spend on food? And that's kind of the same thing here. Do we give people money in the form of say an expanded child tax credit, which is obviously a priority for the current administration, or do we give them money they have to spend on something in particular in this case, education. I think there's also a way for that kind of approach to help support choice within the public sector. And that comes back to your question about charter schools. And obviously, charter schools aren't tied to the neighborhood that you live in. They kind of break that link between neighborhood and school attendance. And I think we generally see that as a good thing because we know families are often limited in the neighborhood they can afford to live in. And if you break that link and say you don't have to go to your zone school, you have more opportunities that could potentially open up more higher quality opportunities. But they still have to get there, right? And geography is still a real constraint in that if they're aren't appealing opportunities you can actually get your child to because you don't have a car or because public transportation is too expensive or because you just don't have the time in your day to travel across town every day. I think this is here we're providing some additional resources that families say could use for transportation could turn a choice that's a choice on paper into a real choice for a lot of families and could be a way to expand the portfolio of options for families, both a traditional district, charter schools, uh, private schools, and what have you. I see why you testify in front of Congress. That's the answer I'd like to capture and talk to folks about. I want to take a little bit of a pivot here. Just because we've got you and your work is about data and, and using data to help us understand how to make better policy. One of the things we know to be true, I was just talking with Gerard at the outset, how I used to work in standardized assessment, in fact, in large-scale assessment back in 2001. So when that's what we were thinking about all the time. And one of the real benefits, you might disagree, but I would say of the No Child Left Behind era is that we learned how to actually use data, how to look at data, how to look under the hood and, and get at least a 10,000 foot view of what was going on in schools, whether or not kids were being served. But today, I mean, pre-pandemic and certainly it feels like post-pandemic, the idea of test-based accountability, accountability generally, but test-based accountability in particular seems to be going out the window. I've 
feel like I have to share. I feel like I might be a little bit old school. My poor daughter is taking the independent school entrance exams right now and stressing out about it. And I keep telling her it's a life skill. You need the experience. You need to learn how to do this. And in the back of my mind, I'm wondering, well, maybe it's not going to be anymore. I want to get your take on where you think we're going in terms of not just accountability, but using large scale assessment for accountability. And absent that, do we have any options for helping policymakers and and school leaders and parents make good decisions about schools? I think there's a real tension here. You know, on one hand, I, th I agree with you that you know, the real value of No Child Left Behind was shining a light on these issues and providing data, um, both for students overall, but also for subgroups of students based on income, based on race and ethnicity, that we wouldn't have otherwise. It was obviously limited. It was limited in, in, in most cases to math and reading scores. So right all these years later, people complain, why do we pay so much attention to math and reading? Well, it's because it's what gets tested. But then you say, OK, so why don't we test all these other things? Why don't we test before third grade to get a better sense of sort of the development of early literacy skills, for example? Then people say, well, 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 wait a minute. I don't I think there's too much testing, not too little testing, but you, you sort of can't have it both ways there. So on one hand, really valuable to have the information. On the other hand, you know, do worry about some of the effects on whether it leads to too much focus on the things that are tested, and then whether there is real willingness to use the information and to act on it and to hold schools accountable. I think that was initially politically palatable because the school isn't a person, right? It's a sort of vague institution to you know, hold the school accountable. But once you turn that into, you know, let's, do, let's hold students and their families accountable, let's hold teachers accountable, let's hold principals accountable. All these are people, right? So these are human beings with their strengths and weaknesses and promise and flaws. And something like that, that gets a lot harder because right, you might look at a school and say, well, the test scores aren't so great, but it's good in these other ways. Do we really want to be punitive? And is going after or shaming schools for posting bad scores, is that going to help them improve or is that just going to stigmatize them and make things worse? And to be clear, we do have some evidence that a lot of that accountability work did make a difference in terms of leading to some improvements in test scores, especially for students who were furthest behind before, before NCLB. But as we try to move sort of toward the future and, and kind of build on those gains, clearly nothing that has happened has solved everything because we know we still have a, a lot of challenges uh, we face. I think there's a real question about what role standardized testing and accountability ought to play going forward. You know, in my view, uh, at a minimum, having the information is really important, but I think we probably need more than just the math, look at math and reading in grades three through eight and once uh, in high school. And we need to maybe rethink how we're going to use that information to, to best support schools. So, Matt, let's switch gears and talk about higher education. As Kara mentioned in her opening, you helped to co-author a book, The Game of Loans. And you're pretty clear that your research has identified 1.6 trillion in loans that are outstanding, and most of it's held by the federal government. There are all kinds of politicians when they run for office, including during the 2020 presidential debate. What role will the new president play in the loan debate. Do we forgive loans? Do we come up with better rates? All these things. It's a really big issue, and I'm not sure people really understand how impactful it's been, not only on the economy, but people who borrow. So talk to us broadly about the student loan debt crisis, how we got into it, and what are some possible remedies to address it? 
Well, it's clearly a big issue that a lot of people care about a lot. As you mentioned, 1.6 trillion is a, a big number, right? What's that? 1,600 billion, which is, I'm trying to do the math, I'm not going to do the math, but it's, it's a lot of money. And part of how we got here is a good thing. It's that more people are going to college, more people are getting bachelor's degrees, more people are getting graduate degrees. And a lot of those are good investments that pay off for those people. So some of that growth is a good thing, the same way if we encourage more people to get mortgages and become homeowners and we saw mortgage debt go up, we'd say, well, that's a good thing to the extent that we think homeownership is a good thing. I think where the challenges are where people have, where some of that, uh, those dollars have gone to credentials that don't pay off, whether that's a degree from an institution that's just not a very high quality credentials, it doesn't actually help you be more successful in the labor market, whether it's maybe a graduate degree that you were forced to get because say you're a teacher or a social worker. And you know we know in education, for example, that most master's degrees uh, don't lead to any increase in, in teacher effectiveness, yet we, in many states, require teachers to get them. So that's not very good debt. It's that you took on to get something that you just had to get for professional reasons. And then, of course, lots of folks go to college, try it out for a couple of semesters, even a couple of years, and it doesn't work out, and they leave without a credential. And so now they have the debt from trying to get a credential, but they don't have the enhanced earnings that would well, they would have gotten if they had earned the credential. So I think really the question is, how do we do a better job of making fewer of the good loans, the good investments, and making fewer of the bad loans, and the bad investments? And there's some obvious problems with the program, such as graduate students and parents of undergraduates can take unlimited amounts of money from the government. And obviously, once you sort of write blank checks, that can really cause all sorts of havoc and lead people to take on loans that they shouldn't take on. So just doing something about that while preserving the undergraduate loan program, which is more limited and I think is operated by the government in a much more responsible way. And then looking at the repayment side of things, that having a safety net in place for people so that if you try out college and have some debt and struggle to repay it, or if you don't get a great job right away or a high paying job right away, you can pay back based on your income. And we have these programs in place, but they, they haven't worked as evidenced by the millions of people in default. So making those programs work better for people. And then I think there's some set of folks who took out loans that never should have been made because of a program that was designed in, by the government in an, an irresponsible way. And I think we absolutely ought to go forgive some of those loans. But we have to for, fix the problem going forward and backward, and those things have to work well together. If we just go and wipe out some or all of the debt and go back to making the same loans we were making yesterday, I'm sure the folks who get their loans forgiven will appreciate that, but it's not going to solve the policy program and it's going to spend a whole lot of money. So I really think we need to fix the program going forward and then say, well, what were the mistakes made looking backward? And let's fix those by, sure, forgiving some of the debt, forgiving the loans that shouldn't have been made. And then the folks who can afford to repay, whose educations did pay off, have them be able to pay their loans in a way that's affordable for them. Sticking with higher education, a person will take the loan and go to a college. And we know that in the last 30 years, that the administrative costs in particular have just skyrocketed at colleges. And for many decades, higher education advocates have said, well, let's just be honest, there's a little relationship between the increase in student tuition and the actual costs of delivering a college education. And it's often, again, being paid for by uh, government loans. So discuss the role of higher ed and the role it plays itself in saddling generations of Americans with huge debt. And who's holding higher ed accountable for this in the first place? Folks like to talk about higher ed as if it's this sort of, I say monolithic, but coherent, organized thing. 
when, as you know, it's a set of institutions of thousands of institutions, some private nonprofits, some public, and the public's obviously run by state governments, local community colleges, and then a, a slice of for-profit institutions. And these institutions are all operating in a market. And it's not obviously a completely free market. It's a market that is rife with support from the government in the form of both student loans, but also Pell Grants that operate sort of as a voucher system in higher education, that students can take that voucher in the form of whether it's a grant or a loan to, to more or less any institution. And so within this market, as strange of a market as it is, institutions have to act in a way that furthers their mission and furthers their interest as institutions. And so I think some of what you've seen is, for example, you know, in certain sectors of institutions, arms races around amenities, and maybe some of this is tied to administration as well, although I don't think that's probably the big, big cost driver here, but you're trying to recruit students, so you have to you know, compete for them by offering better amenities or offering them lower tuitions in the form of discounts and scholarships and, and things like that. So you can end up in a world where institutions are behaving in a way that makes sense for them as individuals. And if they didn't act that way, they might go out of business or have financial problems. But it's not in a way that is particularly productive for higher education as a whole or for society. So I think the challenge for, for policymakers, and especially Congress here, because they play such a role in the financing of this, but, but of course state governments as well, is how do you change the set of incentives at play so that the set of constraints that institutions face so that when they make these decisions, it leads to kind of a better outcome overall, a virtuous cycle rather than a vicious cycle. Yeah, as we talk about colleges, we also talk about buildings. We talk about campuses and colleges have invested millions of dollars into the beautification of their campus in part to attract students to attract public and private investments, but also to keep up with some of their competitors. And while this is taking place, we also have a decline in academic quality, grade inflation, and the, as you say, debates about political correctness on campus. With all of this taking place, tuitions going up in the air and issues about competition, are there some other issues that are driving costs in the image of higher education that maybe we're missing and it's starting to creep into the whole academic mission of education in the first place? An additional factor that I think that drives costs here is just that labor costs in these service-intensive industries have been going up over time. This is an issue in K-12. It's an issue in higher education. It's often called uh, Bommel-Bowen cost disease. And Bommel and Bowen had this paper from the, the 1970s, and they used the example of a string quartet. And it always takes four musicians to perform a string quartet. And that's a model for the service sector of the economy. And in the more kind of capital intensive sector of the economy, as that gets more productive over time due to developments around technology, people are workers in those sectors are more productive. They have to get paid more. They expect to get paid more, they get paid more. So to compete with that, the service side of the economy has to pay people more, even though productivity isn't going up because it still takes for people to play in a string quartet. A teacher with 25 students or a professor teaching a lecture of 200 students is still a person. And so that um, that increase in labor costs, I think, is, is probably a significant factor in both K-12 and higher education. It's not obvious what you do about it. So I think what's important to try and disentangle in some of these policy discussions is what are the cost increases that are kind of unavoidable the cost increases that are above what we think of as inflation and the sort of consumer goods CPI side, but are kind of labor 
inflation. And then what are the ones that seem to be more the result of bad incentives around some of these amenities, arms races, building fancy buildings, fancy dorms, which maybe are driving up costs in a way that are actually avoidable. Well, Matt, I want to thank you again for joining us today. We're talking about higher ed and K-12. We often don't have people who can actually walk both lanes well, and you did. And for talking about, you know, what this means for our economy. I'm a big proponent of school reform. I'm a big believer that money matters, but money alone without a conversation about the context of schooling and how we invest and what are some of the bureaucratic and policy challenges in place sometimes makes this work tough. So thanks for joining us and we look forward to future conversations. Thanks again for having me. So Kara, my tweet of the week is from your mom's hometown of Detroit and your state of Michigan. And this is from Lori Higgins, November 18th. The school district of Detroit is moving to remote learning on Fridays in December to slow COVID spread. And yeah. that was on Detroit Chalkbeat. I know that's your neck of the woods. It is such a bummer, but right, we've known this is going to happen. As all of us who live in cold climates, we start to move indoors. And so our thoughts are with families. Hopefully the district is better prepared than I'm guessing it is <laughs> to go back to remote learning because I say that because I don't think most districts are, but it's going to be a reality probably for a lot of us into the spring and a hard pivot for parents and teachers alike. So our thoughts are with them. I will say there's also some pretty sad breaking news out of Michigan of yet another high school shooting just as we are recording this right now. So a lot of good love going out to my home state. And this, after a weekend, I will say, when a lot of U of M fans at least had something to be joyful about. And that is, I don't even watch football, but my phone was blowing up from friends and families with this <laughs> University of Michigan victory oh, yeah. over Ohio State, which hasn't happened, what, in I guess like 20-something years. So that's the good part. But our thoughts and prayers are with families, friends, and the people of Detroit. And, and good luck with remote learning, teachers parents, students, hopefully it won't last long. All right, Gerard, we will be back together again. Looking forward to next week when we're going to have yet another amazing guest and you and I can begin to reflect on what a year it has been. So until then, my friend, take care. Talk to you next week. Gobble, gobble. Gobble.